thank you guys. Thanks, Pastor Eric. Uh, it was a privilege to be able to do that. Obviously, we were so happy you could go, but I'm really glad you're back. <laughs> All right, well, good morning again. Welcome again. Uh, we are uh, nearing the end of our series, Jesus the King. And as we approach Good Friday and Easter Sunday and the culmination of the Gospel of Mark, we're beginning to bring some closure to this amazing narrative, to this story of Jesus' life and ministry. And as we've mentioned several times, pretty much every week throughout this series, uh, this is based on a book by Pastor Timothy Keller. Uh, it's now sold under the title Jesus the King, but it was originally published as King's Cross. And King's Cross is a, a famous railway station in London. If you've seen that Harry Potter movies, it's where the students board the train at platform nine and three quarters to go to the magical world of Hogwarts. But it is actually a real life place, a real life train station. And it's obviously a place where different train lines intersect. And it is one of the busiest stations in England based on my extensive research on Wikipedia. Uh, but this book and series uh, are meant to be something of an intersection as well. Uh, Pastor Keller understands the gospel uh, as the meeting of two key ideas. Jesus' identity as the king and his purpose in dying on the cross. And as the narrative draws closer and closer to the cross, as we move in the direction of the cross, this intersection becomes more and more vital in understanding what this is all about. And as we seek to understand what Good Friday is about, what Easter is about, as we prepare ourselves today on Palm Sunday and this week, the Holy Week, we want to consider these moments, these amazing events uh, in the larger context as Jesus, as the King on the cross. So this morning we're going to be looking at a passage that details some of Jesus' final moments before his death. We're going to see his last interactions with the disciples. And we're going to look at two important moments that give meaning to the king's cross. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Now remember, this is the night before the crucifixion. Jesus has just finished the Passover meal with his disciples. Now just a note, uh, if you were here last week, those four glasses of wine that Pastor Nick talked about are going to help us to understand why the disciples have such a hard time staying awake. That was like an aha moment for me as I was studying this passage this week. That's really interesting. But that's not really the point. But the point is after the meal, he takes the disciples, Jesus gathers his disciples, and he goes uh, to this garden called Gethsemane. And he wants to pray. He wants to prepare himself. So let's read Mark 14, verse 32. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? 
Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now there's an important contrast here. And it's one that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark. And it's meaningful for us as we consider Jesus as king. On one hand, you have the obedience and the faithfulness of Jesus. Here we see a very human, very real, vulnerable Jesus struggling with the weight of what he has to do, with the weight of the cross. But ultimately, he chooses submission to the Father. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. But on the other hand, you have the disciples falling asleep, cutting off ears, betraying Jesus, fleeing in terror at his arrest. Now, it can be easy to read this on a real surface level in terms of just what's happening, that Jesus is able to come to grips with the possibility of his death, and the disciples are not. The disciples are scared. Jesus is brave. But there's much more at stake here than just the threat of physical punishment, just fear of what's going to happen. Instead, these two episodes demonstrate the challenge of living out Jesus' kingdom mission in real life, in the face of real challenges. Now let's back up for a second and add some context to this moment, some context from the larger events of Mark. Now remember, throughout this series, throughout Mark, we've been talking about this idea that the focus of Jesus is ministry, of his preaching and teaching has been the kingdom of God. This idea that Jesus didn't just come so that people could uh, be saved from hell and go to heaven someday, but instead Jesus wants to invite people into new life right now, kingdom life. He wants to invite them into a new way of living, a new paradigm for viewing the world. This is why Jesus came. This is what his kingship is about, to establish God's good, perfect reign for our lives. When I was a junior in high school, our school's basketball program got a, a new head coach. And our previous coach had been a nice guy. He was kind of more of a player's coach. And so everybody liked him, but our team had been struggling for several years. So they brought in Dave Sanderson, a Covina High School legend 
who was going to come out of retirement for a couple of years uh, to coach our group. And so everyone was real excited about this. But when Coach Sanderson stepped onto the scene, everything changed. Now, obviously, there were some you know, basic strategic changes. We went from running a flex-based offense to a motion offense. We began running exclusively a switching man-to-man -man defense because everybody knows that zone defense isn't real basketball. And we, uh, we also uh, just changed a lot of things about the culture. Coach Sanderson was insistent upon viewing basketball in a very specific way. And he wasn't a player's coach. He was tough. He was disciplined. He wanted us to be hardworking and intense. He made us run so much that we came to call ourselves the Covina cross-country team. He gave each player a game score. This was kind of advanced stats in its early phases. And so everybody would get a sheet, and they would have different values for different things that you would do on the court. And then the number one thing that you could do in a game to get points wasn't to score, wasn't to hit a three-pointer, wasn't to get a rebound. It was to take a charge, where you stand in front of somebody, they hit you, and you fall back, and you kind of slide your butt on the ground to, to get the call. That was worth the most points in the game. Now, incidentally, that was probably the only thing I was actually good at. So I got to play once in a while, and I got some good game scores from all my charges. But you know, in any context, when a new leader, a new coach, a new administration takes over, there's going to be a new way of doing things, a different set of values, a different set of goals, a new way of seeing the game, the job, or life itself. And in a sense, I think that's the simplest way of thinking about the kingdom of God. Jesus came to establish a new program for God's people, a new paradigm for viewing life, a new set of values to live by. And the contrast between the new kingdom and the old kingdom, between Jesus' way of doing things and the old way of doing things, is perhaps best seen in a conversation between Jesus and two of his disciples, John and James. And these two guys, they're, they're brothers, they're two of Jesus' closest disciples. They come to him with a request. And they say, Jesus, when you come in glory, we want to sit at your right and your left hand. And you can see that they're thinking about Jesus, they're thinking about him as king in terms of the old kingdom. They're thinking about power, authority, glory, riches, reputation. And so they're, they're like, Jesus, when you get here and you get all that, we want the second most all that. And so Jesus kind of rebukes them. And he says, you guys don't have any idea what you're talking about. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what it really means to walk with me, to take part in what I'm going to take part in, because my kingship, my all that is sacrifice, it's suffering, it's humility. And he tells them this in Mark 10, 42. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave 
to all. Because even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see this same basic idea throughout Jesus' ministry. In one of his core sermons, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, he shows us that the values of the kingdom are vastly different from the values of the old system, the values of this world. Jesus says this, Blessed are you who are poor. Happy are you. Fulfilled are you. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. But woe to you, cursed are you, who are rich, for you already have received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. See, Jesus is calling his followers to a brand new set of values, a new paradigm. And people have called this the upside-down kingdom because it completely inverts the values of this world. It says things like money, power, authority, glory. Those are not at the top anymore. Instead, weakness, suffering, poverty, whatever the cost is of loving God, and loving people, whatever it takes to do that, whatever you have to do to do that, that's at the top. The way of power is replaced by the way of the servant. And that's the kingdom Jesus is bringing, and he's king over that way of living. Now back to our passage, back to the the garden, back to Jesus' arrest. What we see throughout these verses, especially in Jesus' arrest, is that his followers, his disciples, they haven't fully grasped this. They haven't been able to fully embrace what it means to live out this new ethic of Jesus. Even as they near the cross, they don't totally understand what it means that he's king. Now, Judas is an obvious culprit. And Judas's motivations are uncertain. We don't know exactly why he betrays Jesus, why he does what he does. But at the very least, we can see a little bit of his faulty beliefs. Judas shows up with a a crowd, a a small army of of men armed with clubs and swords. And there's a sense that he believes that Jesus' kingdom operates under the same assumptions as the old kingdom. Plays by the same rules of power, might, and authority. And so he believes that what's going to win the day here is swords and clubs. But the more fascinating character here is is Peter. Because Peter should know better. He knows that Jesus isn't a violent revolutionary. He knows Jesus isn't here to lead an army. And he has perhaps the deepest understanding of Jesus' identity and mission. But Peter's problem is that he can't fully let go of the old paradigm. He can't fully buy into this kingdom of sacrifice, of suffering, And he hasn't fully bought into the way of the cross. Listen to what Keller says about Peter. He says, but Judas is not the only one who doesn't get it. We read that when Jesus is arrested, one of those standing near 
drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. In the Gospel of John, we're told it was Peter, which figures. Peter knows about the kingdom of God. He has heard Jesus' teaching about it over a period of years. Yet when push comes to shove, what's his instinct? Pull out that sword. Aren't we kind of like Peter? We say we're on the side of justice, of peace, of fairness, but when a challenge arises, we feel for the sword hilt. We merge the kingdom of this world, sword on top, and money, power, success, and recognition into our philosophy, whether it's Christianity or something else. We settle for the kiss of death. We're exactly like Peter. See, in a way, Peter's failure is a reflection of our own. Our own tendency to make this gut-level choice to reach for the sword, to reach for the currency of the old kingdom. And the reason isn't that, that Jesus' way isn't appealing. It's not that Peter heard Jesus talk about love and sacrifice and was like, no, I'm out. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I only want to fight and be out for power and money and glory. But instead, it's that deep down, it's that the old way of doing things, it makes sense to us. It's logical. It's what we know. And so I think there's a big part of us that when push comes to shove, when challenges arrive, when we're trying to get what we really want, what's really important to us, there's a part of us that believes that maybe the way of Jesus doesn't totally work. When it comes to real life, our real needs, it's not totally practical. That success in life, real life, comes from power, authority, reputation, wealth. All the stuff that Jesus said we didn't need. All the stuff that Jesus said goes at the bottom. At the end of the day, we believe that sometimes we need that sword. One of my favorite movies to watch with the kids these days is Raya and the Last Dragon. Uh, we've probably seen this movie 10 to 15 times, and it's, it's good. I like it. It's fun. It's action-packed, good animation, good music. It's got some heart. But Raya is all about this fractured world. Uh, there are these faceless bad guys called the Droon who they have to fight, but really, the real bad guy of the story is the conflict between the different parts of this larger nation, which is called Kumandra. And within Kumandra, there are five different tribes who are at odds with each other. And there's a lot of distrust between the tribes. Each one wants the power of this magical dragon stone for themselves. And I think really at the heart of this story is two different ways of dealing with this conflict. Raya chooses to really look out for herself. She's smart, she's competent, she is cunning and resourceful, but she is deeply distrusting. And so as she goes out into Kumandra searching for these different pieces of the Dragonstone, she chooses deception and violence. She quite literally chooses a sword. Now on the other hand, there's Sisu, this magical water dragon. And Sisu believes with almost a naive optimism that people 
are good, that people can be trusted. And her strategy for getting pieces of the stone is to be open and honest and vulnerable. She wants Raya to go to each tribe with a gift and simply ask for help to lower herself in humility and trust. And I really think this is the theme of the story, trust versus distrust, believing in the good in people versus believing the worst. And as you can guess, at the end of the movie, there's a happy ending. And the takeaway is pretty simple. We need to be more like Sisu. We want to see the good in people, choose peace, even if it puts us in danger. Now, as much as I love this movie, I enjoy it, there's a part of me every time I watch it that has the same thought. Like, this is awesome, good story, but I don't know. It doesn't seem that realistic. That's not the way things would work in real life. Because at the end of the day, what we see throughout this movie is that there are bad people. There are people who want to hurt Raya, who don't deserve her trust, who are selfish and violent. And so when I watch the movie, I can't help but think about all the ways things would have gone wrong if Raya had done things Sisu's way the whole time. I can't help but think that if you do things Sisu's way, eventually you're going to get jacked. Eventually you're going to get hurt. And at one point, as I was watching this for like, I don't know, the 12th time, it just kind of hit me. Like, is this really how I feel? Is this how I feel about life? I'm watching a movie that says we should trust people, seek peace, even if there's a cost. That says in the face of hardship and scarcity and conflict, we should be humble and loving rather than looking out for ourselves. And my reaction is, well, that's not so practical. That would never work in real life. Is that how I feel? And more importantly, what does that mean for how I live my own life? What does that mean for how I respond when there's hardship and scarcity and conflict? This is pretty jarring. And I think if we're honest, there is some of this doubt, some of this pragmatism in our beliefs about the way of Jesus about actually living out in real life these new kingdom values that Jesus preaches and teaches and calls us to. Like, if I keep turning the other cheek, eventually don't I just get beat up? If I keep giving radically to others, won't I run out? If I spend all my time living for the good and the blessing of those around me, am I just going to end up being spent and miserable? How do we live this way without eventually getting crushed ourselves? And I think this is a little bit of the heart behind Peter's actions in the garden. You know, we don't have any indication that he's an overly violent guy. He's a fisherman. Instead, he's looking at the world through the eyes of the old kingdom, the logical, realistic way of viewing things. And I think in his mind, he has no choice. He's saying, Jesus, if I don't pull this sword, we're going to lose. 
and we are going to lose everything. What else can I do? The other disciples' responses when Jesus is arrested shows that in one sense or another, they've all sort of missed the point too. They run, they flee, they give up on Jesus and his kingdom mission. Uh, it says that one of the followers is so desperate to get away that one of the attackers grabs his cloak and he just lets the guy have it and runs away naked. And so we're, the image we're left with at the end of this passage is someone standing in a garden, naked and ashamed. We're right back where we started in Genesis 3. Unable to choose the kingdom of God and now separated from him. It's almost certain that Mark is using this imagery to draw us back to this first moment of failure. Because ultimately that brings us back to the heart of this passage, to this contrast. Because while the disciples, Jesus' followers, are all doing the same old thing in the garden, Jesus is doing something new. Jesus isn't drawing a sword. Instead, he's getting ready to take the sword upon himself for us. Let's go back to this moment in Gethsemane, this prayer. And we talked a bit about Jesus' struggle in this scene, the, the, the weight that he feels as he considers what he's about to do. And it's important to know that Jesus isn't just scared of dying. He's not afraid of the physical pain. He's not freaking out because he doesn't want to die. Instead, he is devastated at the prospect of what he's going to do, of bearing the weight of our sin, bearing the, the very cup of God's wrath that we deserve for our sin, all of our wickedness, all of our sin, all of the mistakes, all of the evil, all of the conflict. When Adam and Eve leave the garden naked and ashamed, that, that perfect world of God's reign and presence and blessing, this literal garden of Eden that is representative of God's perfect kingdom, that way is blocked by a flaming sword. And when Jesus goes to the cross, he's going to have to take that sword, he's going to have to take the punishment that we deserve. But to take that sword means experiencing separation from God. It means that the eternal Son of God, who had never sinned, was going to take all of our sin, all of the full consequences of our sin, in full force upon himself. Jesus considers this, and it shakes him to his core. But again, he responds in obedience. Here we see him embodying the values of the kingdom perfectly. Choosing sacrifice, suffering, death. All out of love for the Father and out of love for his people. Love for you and I. We have to remember that Jesus doesn't just do this to set an example for what we should do. Instead, he's making it possible for us to make this same kind of choice without being crushed ourselves. Here's one more quote from Pastor Keller. 
He says, when you see Jesus caring for the poor, forgiving his enemies without bitterness, sacrificing his life for others, living a perfectly loving and sinless life, you say, I can't do that. You're right. You can't. Jesus Christ as only an example will crush you. Jesus as only someone who's bringing a new set of rules will crush you. Jesus Christ as somebody who wants you to follow a specific set of behaviors, that will crush you. You will never be able to live up to it, but Jesus Christ as the Lamb will save you. On the cross, Jesus is getting what we deserve so we can get what he deserves. Let me read that again. On the cross, Jesus is getting what we deserve so we can get what he deserves. When you see that this great reversal is for you, when you see that he gave up all his cosmic wealth and came into our poverty so that you could be spiritually rich, it changes you. This is the beauty of the cross. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, that old life is bad. Stop doing it that way. Do it this way now. Go do your best. Instead, he says, I'm going to go to the cross to open up a way for you to experience life under a whole new system and experience blessing in it. And the foundation of that life is life in the presence of God. It's us regaining access to Eden, to the perfect reign of God, a life where you are loved perfectly, where you are made whole and valuable, where your identity isn't in what you do or what you have or what you own or what you look like, but it's in who you are as a child of God, a life where your joy is not found in pursuing this or that or scratching and clawing for all the different things we think we need, but our joy is found in Jesus alone, found in knowing him, in being loved by him, in loving people the way he loved people. That's where our fulfillment is. And in doing that, Jesus, he he literally takes away the power of sin and death over us. He takes away the power of riches, of glory, of power, of money, of fame. And he says, those things do not control you anymore. Sure, they have an impact on your life. They influence what happens to you, but they cannot touch your soul. They cannot touch your identity. They cannot touch your worth. They cannot touch your value, your joy, how good your real life is. Those things are hidden away in Jesus Christ. Those things are locked in already, and nothing can change that. And so we can choose to live sacrificially. We can choose to to suffer and struggle through this life, follow the road to the cross, because actually, simply knowing God is better than anything we might lose in this world. And the joy we find in him is better than anything we might gain from this world. This is precisely what Paul is telling us in Philippians 3. He says, but whatever were gains to me, 
Whatever was good, whatever I thought I needed, whatever I thought made me happy, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He said, I want to participate in Jesus' sufferings. I want to walk the way of the cross because it's worth it. Because life with Jesus, life being found in him is that good. As we approach Good Friday, as we approach Easter Sunday this week, let's consider what the cross really means to us in real life. Consider what it means that Jesus died in your place. That he took that flaming sword for you. Jesus made a way for you to go back to live life in the presence of God. To love him and be loved by him. To experience this goodness and blessing that God has for us. And because of that, we can put away our swords. We can put away our reliance on power, on reputation, on wealth. And we can follow the new way of Jesus. We can follow the way of the king on the cross. Let's pray together.